You're listening to Martin Wolf's podcast from the Financial Times. What are my bid on financial sector losses from the US subprime mortgage crisis? Do I have advances on the $100 billion suggested by Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Federal Reserve, only last July? Yes, I now have $500 billion from the gentleman from Goldman Sachs. Any advances on $500 billion? Yes, I have $1,000 billion to $2,000 billion from Nouriel Roubini of New York University's Stern School of Business. Any advances? Going, going, gone. It is easy to be cynical about this ascending auction of scary prognoses, but we cannot ignore them. In my column, Why Washington's Rescue Cannot End the Crisis Story, of February the 27th, I analyzed the implications of aggregate financial sector losses of $1,000 billion. That figure was in line with estimates by Professor Rubini and George Magnus of UBS. I concluded that even this vast sum would be manageable, if painful, for an economy as big and a government as creditworthy as that of the US. Subsequently, Professor Rubini has objected that I have taken the downside too lightly. He now argues in the Financial Times Economists Forum that financial losses might amount to $3,000 billion. A trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, and pretty soon you're talking real money, even for the US. So does his new bid make sense. Most of these losses will not fall on the financial sector, but elsewhere. As Professor Rubini notes, a 10% fall in house prices relative to the peak knocks off $2,000 billion, 14% of gross domestic product, from household measured wealth. The first 10% fall has actually already happened. What he sees as a likely 30% cumulative fall would wipe out $6,000 billion, or 42% of GDP and 10% of household wealth, from the value of the housing stock. Already, falling prices are showing up in declining measured net household wealth. Professor Rubini also talks of a $5,600 billion decline in the value of stocks and the possibility of additional trillions of dollars in losses on commercial property. Total losses might even equal annual GDP. The principal direct effect of such losses will be on spending, particularly residential investment, and household consumption. In the third quarter of last year, personal savings were a mere 2.4% of GDP, while the financial balance of the personal sector, the difference between its income and expenditure, was minus 2.1%. These patterns do not make sense when asset prices are falling, but a sharp rise in household savings would ensure a deep and durable recession. Worse, the bigger the damage to the financial sector, the more credit-fueled personal spending is going to dry up. So what might such overall losses mean for financial intermediaries? In other words, what proportion of these losses will be borne by financial intermediaries? In Professor Rubini's 12 Steps to Meltdown, discussed in my column of February the 20th, he assumed that, the, he assumed that their losses on mortgages will be 300 to $400 billion dollars while losses on other assets, consumer debt, commercial real estate loans and so forth, will be another $600 billion to $700 billion for a total 
of $1,000 billion. On March the 7th, Goldman Sachs economists published an even higher estimate of mortgage-related losses at $500 billion, along with $656 billion in other losses, for a total of $1,156 billion. So the mainstream has caught up with Professor Rubini, but he, meanwhile, has moved on. In reaching its conclusion, Goldman estimated a peak-to-trough house price fall of 25%. In his comments on the FT's Economist Forum, Professor Rubini suggests that after price falls of 20% from the peak, losses on mortgages could be as much as $1,000 billion. With a 40% fall, they could be $2,000 billion. He adds another $700 billion for other losses to reach his estimate of total financial sector losses of close to $3,000 billion, or about 20% of GDP. So how does Professor Rubini reach these much higher figures? The difference between him and Goldman is not so much in assumptions about the house price fall. It's 25% for Goldman Sachs and 20 to 40% for him. Both also estimate that lenders would lose half of the loan value after repossession. But Goldman believes that just 20% of households in negative equity would default, while Professor Rubini believes 50% might do so. For people with poor credit ratings and few assets apart from the house, walking away does seem to make disturbingly good sense. Buyers with no equity have an option to walk, and now many are exercising it. This was clearly demented finance. Yet so long as the economy remains reasonably robust, highly indebted people with good career prospects would surely not wish to wreck their credit rating. Nevertheless, markets are pessimistic. The prices of even AAA tranches of securitized loans are now collapsing. Suppose then that Professor Rubini were right. Losses of $2,000 billion to $3,000 billion would decapitalize the financial system. The government would have to mount a rescue. The most plausible means of doing so would be via nationalization of the losses. While the U.S. government could afford to raise its debt by up to 20% of GDP in order to do this, that decision would have huge ramifications. We would have more than just the biggest U.S. financial crisis since the 1930s. It would be an epochal political event. Yet Goldman argues that after allowing for loan loss provisions, the proportion of loss-making loans advanced by the non-leveraged sector and the ability to write off losses against tax, that its $1,156 billion would come down to just $298 billion. If a similar magic could be worked on the Rubini numbers, the effective losses to the leveraged sector will be less than $750 billion, huge, but far more manageable. Much will depend on what happens to the economy. Unfortunately, the effectiveness of monetary policy is constrained when the worries are more about insolvency than illiquidity. Concern about credit quality is rampant, not least in the resurgent spreads on interbank lending. Monetary policy is further constrained when lower short-term interest rates fail to translate into long-term rates, partly because of worries about inflation. Alas, worries are understandable. There are two ways of adjusting the prices of housing to overall incomes. 
allow nominal prices of houses to fall or raise nominal incomes. The former would mean mass bankruptcy and a huge fiscal bailout. The latter would impose the inflation tax. In extreme circumstances, inflation must be attractive. Even if it is not the Fed's choice, it is what a reasonable outsider might fear, with obvious consequences for all asset prices. Personally, I suspect Professor Rubini's latest estimates are excessively pessimistic. But I am not certain this is so, given his relatively good recent record. Just look at the vicious interaction between falling asset prices, financial stress and spending. We must pray that the Fed can clean it all up without excessive collateral damage. Unfortunately, such prayers have a habit of not being answered. Thank you for listening. To read Martin Wolf's columns online, please go to www.ft.com forward slash wolf.